Yeah, we should make you shout those out, right? And <laughs> then we see like who's smart and who's not. Fantastic. Uh, I'm excited to uh, be here this morning. We are having our fall kickoff. There are some bags out there if you want to pick one of those up. Those are free for you, these uh, tote bags, so pretty exciting. So uh, thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, let's start out with our shouts. Ready? What do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we say? I love God and I love you. Fantastic. As we kick off, uh, we're kicking off this new series in Second Peter where we're going to go verse by verse and we're going to study the entire book over the next five weeks. Each year we take about a third of our sermon series and we use them in this kind of format where we go verse by verse through a particular book. And so uh, we're in that this time and then the rest of the time we do what's called uh, topical biblical exposition where we study uh, topics that we find in the Bible. So we do that about two-thirds of the time. But we're in our verse-by-verse time uh, right now for the next five weeks. So our overall theme for Second Peter, we're just going to load this in our brain, we're going to hold it for five weeks, is Second Peter is all talking about uh, what is the truth and what is true knowledge as found in God. Uh, what I mean by true knowledge is the truth God conveys to people about reality, about their self, about the human condition, and about our souls versus what the world or the enemy or the devil says about ourself and our condition in this world and our souls. Now, truth is really important, but sometimes truth is difficult to discern. Now, you've probably heard of the game Two Truths and a Lie, right? Anyone not heard of that? Two Truths and a Lie. So we're going to play that game. Uh, I'm going to give you two true statements about myself and one lie statement, and you have to figure out which is the truth uh, which two statements are true and which one is the lie, okay? So I had to dig into my uh, deep memory bank because I shared a lot of stuff with you, so I feel like you guys know me a little bit. And so here's some uh, two truths and a lie, stuff that I don't share that often. All right, first statement. When I was 14, I spent 10 days in a California juvenile state detention center, actually Theo Lacey by uh, the block in Orange where Krispy Kreme's is now. And I was sent there for breaking and entering and, and uh, uh, breaking and entering into someone's home and burglary. My friend Danny and I had this smart idea to break into this other neighbor's house when we knew that he was not there to steal some things. One statement. Don't shout it out yet. Two truths and a lie. <laughs> Dang. All right. Next statement. I received a partial scholarship for the University of Nevada for swim, but mid-senior season, I, I tore my rotator cuff. And I actually decided to quit swimming rather than do any rehab because it seemed too difficult. And I sort of just bailed on it, and I didn't like swimming that much anymore. And so then I ended up going to UCI as a theater major instead because I thought that would be more fun. All right, third statement. All right, in my teens, I actually made $8,200 as a male model. Well, I look really young, so it wasn't technically a male model. It was for, like, children's advertising. Uh, for a Kmart like shopper ad, <laughs> well, Kmart doesn't exist, but you know like their shopper ads where uh, I was as a kid, but I wasn't a kid at the time. And as a random kid in a Slim Jim commercial with Randy Macho Man Savage when he's like, oh, snap into a Slim Jim, like that. And so I made some money off of that as well. So 8,200 bucks as a, my official male model title right there. Okay, on the count of three, which one is a lie? One, two, three. <laughs> Here's the thing. They're all lies. 
But that's precisely how the enemy acts. That's how the enemy works in this world. Not only does he tell lies and distort the truth, but he's willing to lie about the reality itself. He's, he's never willing to play the game fairly or rightly. And that's why it's so difficult. The enemy has nothing true about him. When he plays two truths and a lie, they're all lies. When he lies, the Bible says it's his native language. He's been lying from the beginning. He's the father of lies. And he'll do anything to cause humans to not follow God or to not believe in God. And he will do any sort of lie. Some that even seem good, like being a male model. Some that seem bad, like being detained. Now, this isn't new or it isn't news. He lied to himself, thinking that he was better than God, and that got him kicked out of heaven as an angel. He lied to Adam and Eve at the very beginning of humanity, and that got them kicked out of the garden. He, he lied to Jesus as Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. He's been lying since the beginning and every gap in between then. He is the father of lies. And the only way to combat the lie is with the truth. So I never went to jail except to visit prisoners as a pastor. And I can barely swim at all. And I promise you I never made any money off these incredibly good looks. <laughs> it's been all for free. And that's the truth. So now let's see God's truth starting in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. So it starts this way. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, have received a precious, uh, received a faith as precious as ours. And so here's his introduction. He says, here's me, Simon Peter. Simon is his birth name. Peter is his name that Jesus renamed him, Petros, or rock in Greek. So he says, this is who I am. I'm a servant and an apostle. And servant, he uses like the lowest form of a servant. He says, I'm a bond servant, or I'm like a slave. And he uses as a, a title or a badge of honor rather than something to be depressed by because Jesus said, what? I came to serve, not to be served. And he says, I'm an apostle. Apostle is just someone who literally walked with Jesus while he was doing his ministry. He's one of those 12 apostles. And then he's writing. He, that, he says, that's who I am. And who am I writing to? To those who through the righteousness of our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So he's using faith in terms of like, the faith as, as in Christianity or the, the truth claims of Christ. And this is fantastic because we are receivers of that faith. We are receivers of Jesus Christ. And so in essence, this letter is not only written to the people of his day, it's written to each of us as holders of that faith that comes through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, he starts this letter officially. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who is called by his own glory and goodness. So knowledge, as seen here, provides two main things. Look in the verse. What does it provide? It provides an abundance of grace and peace, and then it provides power for a godly life. So knowledge or truth about God will provide grace and peace, and it will provide power for, for holy or right godly living. Now, the ancient word for, for knowledge here doesn't refer to simple casual acquaintance or simple mental assent. 
Rather, it means a complete and thorough understanding of something capped off by an experience with that thing. It's not just knowing about the thing or the person, it's knowing the actual person in a deep experiential way. As we get to know God more and more, this allows us to experience an abundance of grace, and grace being God's unmerited favor. As we get to know God more and more, not just in our minds, but in our experience with God, we will uh, experience an abundance of His peace, God's supernatural calm and hope in all circumstances. So true knowledge allows us to see ourselves and our, and our reality correctly. So where Satan would condemn you, Jesus does not grace. Where Satan may make you feel like trash, God assures you that you are treasure, grace. Satan may cause you to be anxious and worry about every situation, whether it's school or work or family or friends or all this kind of stuff. You get anxious and you worry about this. And as we know God more and more, he provides peace. Satan may tell you that you messed it all up and there's no going back or it's too late for you or, or you're, it's not even worth trying. You might think that there's no hope in life. But God gives his peace and a promise of a greater reality. The second thing knowledge brings us, so it brings us grace and peace first, and the second thing it brings us is power for a godly life. Look, knowing about God and his desires will, be, will reveal the proper and best life that you're designed to live. So knowing about God will show you the correct, right pathway for life. But knowing God experientially will give you the divine power to follow that revealed path. Totally different things. Knowing about God reveals what God wants. Knowing God gives us power to walk down that path that he wants. But Satan doesn't want that for us, and he'll do anything to derail God's plans and God's path for you. God will lay it out, and Satan will absolutely try to, to muddy it up, to cloud it up, to mess you up so that you don't follow God's path, so you don't believe God's reality, rather fall into something else. And so Peter convinced that the best antidote for lies is a mature knowledge of the truth. He then exhorts us as the readers, and even now, 2,000 years later, to have a real, deep, growing relationship or knowledge of God and His Word. To not just know about God, but to know God. But this is tough because we as humans, perhaps because of the fallenness of Adam and Eve, perhaps because sin is all around us, we're willing to try almost anything before getting to know God and His will. We trust the schemes and plans of men over the knowledge of God. We try knowing ourselves or figuring it out ourselves instead of getting to know Him. We turn to science to answer our non-scientific metaphysical needs. We embrace man-made philosophies rather than the revealed knowledge of God. Maybe it's crystals or Dianetics or self-help books, gurus. Maybe it's education or occupation. Drugs or alcohol, working out, going to a therapist or a psychiatrist, vacations, relationships, the internet, you name it, we try it to find deep meaning and answers. 
And they will all turn out to be lies and letdowns because the truth is only found in the knowledge of God and the knowledge being our head and our heart's experience with him. Peter goes on to say this. Through, through this, or, or through these things I've just been talking about, he says, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So these, God's grace and then his powerful right living, allow us to participate in the divine nature. But what does he mean? I mean, we become gods like the Mormons sort of say, we can become little gods. That isn't what he has in mind because you look at the second part of the sentence, having escaped the corruption. The first verse we saw said, Jesus, or said God is righteous. And so the divine nature he's talking about is the divine nature of righteousness, that we can be right before God, we can be perfect in God's standing because of what he has done for us. Jesus gives us a righteousness that we don't earn or we don't deserve. It's given to us by God the Father through God the Son. We aren't earning anything, buying anything, attaining anything. If we were, then that would just mirror all of the false religions of the world. That's why it's so important that we get this right. We attain righteousness not because we are righteous, but because God gives it to us. If not, we look like everyone else. If you're a Muslim in Islam, you have to follow the five pillars of Islam. You have to visit Mecca. You have to give to the poor. You have to fast for during Ramadan. You have to pray seven times a day. And, and uh, I don't remember the last one. Sorry. But you have to do something. And if you do those things, then God might not annihilate you. In Hinduism, there's the law of karma. What goes around, comes around. You do something, you get something. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. There's reincarnation in Hinduism where if I, if I did good, then I, become, I, I uh, get born back at a better position. If I do bad, I come back as a cockroach. Do works until by your own effort you become good enough to merge ultimately in Hinduism with the supreme God of the universe. They have multiple gods for everything. And the goal is to merge with that God by doing good yourself. Buddhism, an offshoot of Hinduism, says good works and self-growth are the key to reaching enlightenment. Enlightenment is just when, when I can become nothing and merge with the universe. But it's done by my good works. Americanism, be a good person as defined by yourself, and you'll go to heaven. See, all the religions of the world, you must do something to earn it or attain goodness or godliness or enlightenment. But in Christianity, we've been cleansed from our sin by God and through God, not on the effort or the will of ourselves. Now, this is the faith that he's talking about to hold on to. This is the truth, the knowledge of God. Knowing that I am nothing yet he makes me everything. Knowing that I deserve death and he gives me life. Knowing that I deserve to be alone, yet he gives me community and fellowship. Knowing that I can't do it, so he does it for me. Knowing him frees me to live righteously as he is righteous. And this explains why, he would, why, why Peter would say these are such precious and great promises because they're not based on me earning them or getting them. They're so precious because I don't deserve them. And they're just God's gift to me. Through these promises, we 
escape the corruption. We escape the lies of this world and the evil desires and the, the misspeakings of the enemy. What an incredible reality upgrade. Perfected versus corrupted. Truth versus lie. This truth once received will certainly change how we view ourselves. If we take the Bible seriously and we say, this is the, this is the truth, this is the arbiter of my reality. I will believe the things God says to me, not the things that, that I heard on Joe Rogan or the things that I, uh, ChatGPT told me or the things that I was taught by my parents. See, our truth has to be based in, in God and his word, not all the other ideas which Satan will so easily try to skew all of the time so that he will draw you away from God. That's his only and main desire. Peter continues on. He says, for this very reason, all the stuff I've been talking about, he said, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, godliness mutual affection, and then to mutual affection add love. For this very reason, because we are partakers of the divine nature, we then act, we exert effort, we live out that faith. Growth in Christian life doesn't just happen to us. These incredible qualities aren't things that the Lord simply pours onto us as we passively receive, like, like a ma- mother bird spitting food into the mouth. That isn't how these qualities work. He says, you are something, and once you grasp that you are something, you then put your effort to live out that reality. Starts with faith and it ends with love. That's a great club sandwich here. The truth will always lead us to loving other people. It's the proper, natural, and unavoidable consequence of knowing God. But if we're not loving others, then we don't know God. Love is the clearest sign that we are following God rightly. As we know God more, we increase in these qualities. See it in the next passage. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever does not have them, they're nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. So Peter warns us that knowledge attained can be unproductive and ineffective if we allow that knowledge to stay in our heads and not affect our actions. If it remains intellectual, we will only become prideful, conceited, smug, aloof, condescending, many of the negative things that people attribute to Christians in America nowadays. And it may be perhaps because Christians nowadays know about God, but they don't know God. They know about God, they know what to do, but they're not adding increasing measure the things of God. And this is crazy because this is how the enemy twists even this amazing knowledge of God. That you can get knowledge of God and then somehow the enemy twists it so that you become condescending or, or think you're better than someone or, or think that, that you're like, oh, look at those little people or, or look how wrong they are or oh, they're my enemies now or look, they have different ideas than I have and then we treat them in a negative way or a condescending way or Christians do. 
And so Satan has taken the knowledge of God and twisted that. But that's only if we allow it to stay in an intellectual knowledge and not an experiential knowledge with God. Because once you start to experience God and walk with him in your real life, in your heart, in your day by day, then it doesn't leave space for condescension. There isn't space to be smug or aloof. When, when you embrace this idea that, that, God, you gave me everything, and I am only anything because of you, then I, I can't look down on anyone else. I look up at everybody. Because I know everything that I have is from God, and it's a gift to me, not because I earn it or not because I deserve it. And when I'm in that position, when I, when I am walking with God in that way, and I'm increasing in, in these qualities that he wants me to be increasing, an increasing measure of them, then that will keep me from being ineffective and unproductive with this knowledge that I have. It, it can't just be occasionally that we live, live out these truths. It can't just be at our convenience. These God qualities have to show up in an increasing measure in us. Otherwise, we're going to be ineffective and unproductive. And I don't want that. And then Peter doesn't want that for us. And I don't want that for myself. And I don't want that for you either. And then he says, a compounding reason for this failed condition is that people forget that they were cleansed from their past sins. Check it out. That's that last part of the verse here. People forget they were cleansed from their sins. Perhaps we forgot how bad we were and how much we needed cleansing because we've been maybe not that person for a while. Perhaps we forget the great cost of purging sin's filthy stain. Perhaps we forget how great and complete the cleansing is. That God didn't just cleanse you a little, but he cleansed you completely. He made you perfect. He called you his child. Making a once guilty sinner now pure as the purest snow. Perhaps you forgot that your, re that your reality is that you are a righteous child of God, that you're not a waste, you're not trash, and you're not not enough, like the devil tells you. Perhaps more realistically, we've forgotten how the devil always lies. All these things that we worry about or we think we worry about, all the, the ways that we hear the devil talking about us or who we are or our place in this world or, or what God thinks of us and, and what we're going to amount to. Maybe we've, even as believers, bought into some of those lies. And so we're living down here because we fell for some of the stupid lies of the enemy rather than living up here where God wants us to live. He finishes it this way in our passage today. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you're, you will never stumble and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of, of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Confirm to who? It's to us, not to God. God is certain of our status. He's God. Who are we confirming to? We're confirming ourselves. We're the ones who are unsure. And he says this, if we see these things in our life, if we know that our lives are becoming more and more like Jesus, then we will have this like strength of faith. We'll have this confirmation that, God, I know you did call me, and I can see it because my lived-out reality is that way. I can look at my past, even if it's just past for a little bit because you're just started to follow Jesus, but I can look at my past, and I can see that I'm different from that now. The calling that you've given me is confirmed by the life that I live out. 
Continual growth and progress in the Christian life is a sure way to keep from stumbling over the lies and the deceit of the enemy and the world. Do you want to follow God? You've got to follow God, not just intellectually, but you start to follow him literally in all the decisions of your life, in every area of your life, and you start to live out these truths, and you start to love people, and you start to desire righteousness, and, and all these kind of things, then it's a confirmation to yourself. God knows where you stand, but sometimes I get worried. And God says, well, don't worry. If you are living these things in increasing measure, that's your confirmation. You don't have to be unsure or worried. And then the final idea, leave that up just for one second. The final idea in this passage, look at that. He says uh, uh, that you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, this idea of a rich welcome uh, brings to the, the reader's mind, maybe not to ours, it's this idea of a Roman conqueror coming with a choral entrance. So they would have, a, a guy would come back from conquering his enemies and he would make sure to have a bunch of singers and the band playing and all this kind of stuff, and people lined the road, and they would be cheering and singing how awesome the emperor is, and, and he would come in, and, and this is what the Bible says you should desire, that you should desire this sort of rich welcome when you get to heaven, a vibrant celebration of victory. Now, I've often said that, that I don't want to sneak into heaven. I don't think that... I, I don't want that at all. I never like when people say like, some people will say like, oh, it's okay if I just get in. I just want to make it into heaven, that sort of like low ball offer to get into heaven. But I've never been that way, even from the beginning of my Christian life. And, and I've said this multiple times throughout 30 years of pastoring that I don't want to just get into heaven. I don't want to get to heaven and God look at me side out and be like, oh, yeah, I guess you made it. You know, I don't want that. I want to get into heaven and I want to throw up my arms. I want to say, Dad, I'm here. Man, aren't you proud of me? Like, I know I messed up a bunch, but, but do you know how hard I work for you? Do you know how much I love you, God? Do you know I am so satisfied in you? I've lived my whole life for you. I want to go in with a rich welcome. I don't want to be like, oh, are you sure you're going to get in? And the Bible doesn't want that. And you know what, you guys? I don't want that for you. I want you to live a life in such a way that when you get to heaven, you're like, oh, I'm here. And everyone's like, yeah. And God's like, yeah, you're here. Finally, I let you live so long. I'm so glad to see you. You did so great. Now, I know you weren't perfect. That's why Jesus was there to cover all of that. But you said you did so great. You, were, you increased even... If you're, you're sitting in that church that one night and, then, and you were a little bit different the next day. Great job. I'm so proud of you. People cheering. That's what a rich welcome is. Not to try to sneak into heaven. Not just to do the bare minimum. Not just to, to be what the enemy says you are. The enemy says that maybe you're a Christian because he lost that battle already. He says, yeah, but but look at all the flaws you have. Look at what you can't do. Look at who you aren't. Look at how much better those other people are. Look at how much more money they have. Look how much smarter they are. They got those scholarships. They got into that college. They do all these things. And somebody say, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I just want to get into heaven. And then we leave the rest behind. But that's, that's not God's word. That's not God speaking to you. 
If you've bought into that, you thought that was true about you, that's a lie. And it's not because I say it's a lie, because I had three lies in a row at the beginning. But it's what does God's word say? God's word is clear here. He says, because God will give you righteousness, then from that you can act out this faith, and that'll give you confirmation that you're following God, and that you get to go into God's kingdom. Oh, rich welcome. None of us sneaks into God's kingdom. We are allowed to have a rich, coral, conquering, victorious welcome into the kingdom. And not because we're so good, but because God is so good. And so listen to God's reality, not the enemy's lies about your life, who you are, what you need to do. None of those things. All the things that the enemy tries to pull you down, try to distract you, try to keep you off of God's path. Don't listen to any of that. Listen to what God says. And if you forget, open up 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 again. And maybe tonight you're like, oh, I feel discouraged, or I feel like I'm no good, or I feel like this. Open up 2 Peter 1, 1 and read through what we just read through this morning again and be reminded and say, this is the truth. This other one is a lie. This is the truth. My other thoughts, that self-help book that I had, what the internet says, those are lies. What my own self-doubt says, what the enemy whispers negatively in my ear says, those are lies. This is the truth, and hold on to the truth. I want a triumphant life, and I want a triumphant life for you. So let's pause a moment here, and let's ask God to allow this truth to take hold in us, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our soul and to align us with God's truth and to let go of the lies that we, maybe we've held on for a long time you've been holding on to these lies. A long time you thought you had to do certain good things or God's not going to like you or you're not going to measure up to his standards. That's what your parents used to say to you. That's not what God says to you. Maybe you believed your parents that you're not going to be good enough. You're not as good as your older brother or sister or that you have to do all these good things and measure up or, or make this college or get these grades or make this amount of money or have this car. That's not true. Let go of those lies. Hear the truth of God. You are good enough because he says you're good enough. You are beautiful because he makes you beautiful. You are righteous and perfect because he makes you righteous and perfect. Allow God's truth to not only inform your mind, but to change your actions. This week, this day, in your close relationships and your casual ones at, at work or at home or with school or your friends or your coworkers or your family or your children or your parents. Allow God's truth to inform us, all parts of us and all areas of our lives. Would you ask that God would do that right now in you?